As you can see, our, our theme for the next few weeks is, tell me another story, Jesus. This is part two of our, our series, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16 today, but I want to ask the first question here is, what is a parable? Does anybody want to take a stab at it? We talked about it last week, and someone said it, but let's, what, what is a parable? Thank you. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so for the next few weeks, last week and and the next five weeks, so this week and the next four weeks, then after this, we're going to be talking about parables, uh, stories Jesus told in parables. You know, there was, there's a story that's, that's shared by C.S. Lewis. Well over 50 years ago, during a conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world had gathered together and they were debating what, if any, belief was unique for the Christian faith, as opposed to all these other religions. The debate went on for quite a while until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and he asked this question. He asked, what's the ruckus all about? His colleagues explained that they were discussing Christianity's uniqueness among world religions and had been for quite some time when C.S. Lewis had made his, um, had made his entrance and he, and he really made it sound pretty simple, like staying at a Holiday Inn Express, you know, night type of simple, you know, you ever see those commercials? Well, I, I'm a heart, he was some guy doing heart surgery and he says, well, I, but I stayed on a Holiday Inn Express, you know, so that, that should qualify me. And so this is C.S. Lewis and he comes in and C.S. Lewis responds, oh, that's easy. That's easy. What separates Christianity from all the rest, it's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. And I believe, guys, that was no coincidence that you guys chose that song. For Because we didn't talk about it. They they just chose it. And and I I think that that was no coincidence. You know, a, a sort of enlightened hush fell over the whole crowd of um, of fellas that were gathered there together, then everyone at the conference had to agree. You know, that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It's it's grace, grace. I want you to complete these common American phrases for me. If it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> that's right. If there's no pain, there's no... You guys know these. You get what you... Or... Who, who said it? Deserve, yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, you know, we are taught these things and apply them both to our life and our, and our faith. You know, the only problem is God doesn't operate the way we operate. Thank you, Lord. He doesn't. Rather, God is, God is gracious. He's compassionate. And the scripture says that he is slow to anger, that he is rich in love. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is a gracious God and he loves, he loves to be gracious to you. That's what he loves to do. God loves to bless people who don't deserve it. Do you deserve blessing? 
after blessing, after blessing. I know I don't. I don't deserve it. But He loves to bless people who don't deserve it. And you can't understand the Christian faith of or God, really, unless you first understand grace. Remember last week we talked about the wise and the foolish builder? That main, that the whole sermon was basically talking about foundations. What you're building your life upon. It's the foundation. And I look at grace as being foundation. It is the foundation. It's, it's part of our foundation as the, of the Christian faith. You know, this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at. You know, it's the, it's the foundational characteristic of God because it is rooted in God's love for us. That's what it's all about. It is also the foundation of our faith and, and pretty much at the, at the heart of our relationship to God. That's grace. So you, you have to understand grace before anything else. The, the, the more you understand grace, the more you're going to be drawn to God, the more you're going to love God, the more you're going to trust God, and the more you're going to be grateful to God for all the things that He does for you. Because it is through grace that God brings us to Himself. It's all about grace. You know... A lot of times we talk as if we understand the word. The bank gives us what? When we're late with a payment. They give us a little grace period in there, don't they? That's what the bank does. You know, the the corrupt politician falls from grace. And unfortunately, so do some ministers fall from grace. That happens. You know, we describe the hostess that is serving us as being gracious we describe dancers, well, most of them anyway. You wouldn't you want to see me in some leotards trying to dance because I would not be graceful at all. But we, we describe dancers a lot of times as graceful, don't we? We even say grace at mealtimes. You know, we talk a lot about grace, especially at the church. And we even sang about it this morning before our communion time. We did that. But what's interesting is that Jesus never once in the Gospels mentioned grace. Did you know that? He never said it once. He never used the word. Believe it or not, the Gospels don't record where Jesus ever spoke the word. If you run your fingers down through the red letters of your Bible or type it into your Bible app or break out in an old-fashioned concordance, you won't find the word grace falling from the lips of Jesus. You just don't find it in the Gospel message. And, and, and it was said of him quite a bit, but never said by him. Jesus, I mean, it just came out of his pores, his grace. But it never fell off of his lips. And even though he never said grace, Jesus said a whole lot about grace. Scholars call a whole group of his stories the grace parables. That's what they call them, the grace parables. And some of his most famous stories fall into this category. You know, one of those parables happens to be a story that we're going to talk about today. It's called The Labors in the Vineyard. Sitting on a scenic hillside in Judea, Jesus told this parable. And let me share that with you. And I hope that this will kind of line up here. It says, for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner 
who went out early in the morning to hire men to, to work in the vineyard, in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you what is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and he found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have, why have you been standing here all, all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. So the workers were hired. So the workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when he came to those who were hired first, they, they expected to receive more, but each of them received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, am I not being, am, am I not bring, or being unfair to you? You know, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious that I am generous? So the, the last will be first. And the first, he says, will be last. What a great parable, I think. And a great parable to talk about grace this morning. This story, I think, strikes a chord with many of us because I think what it does is it assaults, it assaults our sense of fairness and justice. That's what it does. You know, we read this and we think, that's not right. How is that fair that I would work eight hours and that guy works one hour and we get paid the same? That's not right. What's up? So many think this story is simply a reminder that even a deathbed confession can get you into heaven. But I think this parable is much more than just that. I think it's more than that. I think this story is all about grace. And I think that it shares with us some really important qualities about God's grace to us. And so what I want to do is I want to share three of them with you this morning. The first quality of God's grace is that it is an extravagant grace to us. I like that word extravagant. I mean, just absolutely. You know, the scene that, that sets up Jesus' story, I think would have been a typical one in, in the days of the Bible. And even today, there are places where day laborers gather to work 
you know, to seek work. If you remember back in the Great Depression, that's what happened on these docks. People would come and they would just wait there to see who was going to get chosen to get to work that day, to get some money. These workers were unskilled and near the bottom of the social economic scale. In fact, many lived at a level not far above beggars. So when the landowner pulls up and he offers to pay them a denarius to work in his vineyard, they eagerly hop into the back of the truck. Well, wait a minute. They didn't have trucks back then, but maybe on the back of a camel or maybe in the wagon or whatever. I don't know. But they were ready to go, weren't they? Because they wanted that denarius. A denarius was a, a normal day's wage, but not for a day laborer. It would have been more like for a Roman soldier. And so even the laborers who put in a full day's work were compensated generously for their time. No one could say that he was being stingy. But the real extravagance of God's grace is seen when even those who only worked one hour were paid just as much, so much more than they deserved. So much more than they deserved. So I think the point of the parable is that God's grace isn't something you earn. It's a gift freely given by an extravagant God. God is so extravagant. You know, many of us identify with these employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day, you know. The whole concept of grace runs contrary to our instincts. It really does. You know, we would, we would, we like the idea of earning our way by picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. We like that idea. You know, that's what religion tells us. You know, the, the Buddhist evaluates life based on the four noble truths and the eightfold path. Hinduism relies on good dharma to get good karma. Muslims, they believe that, that they earn their way to Allah through the five pillars of faith. And even Christians often assume that God saves good people. <coughs> that God saves good people. So, so be good. Work hard. Be honest. Go to church. Say your prayers. Stay sober. Keep your promises. Pay your taxes. Sit through another one of Bob's sermons without falling asleep. And I know who you are. I know who you are. We think as if God grades on a merit system. But he doesn't. But let's not miss the point of the story. God dispenses gifts, not wages. Grace has nothing to do with what you've earned. If it's wages, let me tell you something. If it's wages that you want from God, the Bible says that our salary is already figured out for us. If we want to be rewarded based on our merit, if we want to be compensated for our worth, then the Bible spells out how we will be paid. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's how we will be paid if that's what you want. 
This is what our merit has earned us. But let me tell you something. God has a better idea. Because he says, for the wages of sin is death, but, thank goodness for that but, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the better one. That is much better. You can have your wages, or you can have God's gift, but you can't have both. You can't have both. Put another way, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. We contribute nothing. Zilcho. Nada. As opposed to a worker earning his wage, eternal life is not earned. It is unearned. It is a gift. Our merits merit nothing. Do you get that? Our merits merit nothing. God's grace merits everything. Thank you, Lord. So the first quality of God's grace is that God's grace is extravagant. Would you believe, would you agree with me on that one that God's grace is extravagant? Think about how bad you were this past week. I don't want to think about how bad I was because I was bad. But think about how bad you were this past week. And then think about God's extravagant grace and how much He loves you and how much that grace just covers a multitude of sin. So the first quality is that God's grace is extravagant. Also, the story shares another quality of God's grace. The second quality of God's grace is that it is endless grace. Did you notice in this story here in Matthew chapter 20, how many times the landowner went out looking to hire people for his vineyard? He went out a lot. Jesus said that he went out early in the morning, then he went out about 9 o'clock, Then he went out about 12 noon. Then he went back out about 3. Then he went back out about 5 again. He just kept coming. God's grace is like that. It just keeps coming. Absolutely. That's what God's grace is. It's like that. It just keeps coming. You know, searching for people to save. You know, the, the Bible says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is, is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all to come to repentance. And so, He keeps coming. You know, He keeps coming time after time. No one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and claim that God didn't give them a chance to experience His grace. We have no excuse. We have no excuse. I'm reminded of this old story. This really old story. And I know that many of you have probably heard this a thousand times, but I can't help myself. I've got to share it. I just got to share it because it fits perfect here. You know, there was this terrible storm that came into a town and local officials sent out an emergency warning that the riverbanks would soon overflow and, and flood the nearby homes. So get out! They said, the, the emergency warning said to get out. The riverbanks are going to overflow. 
and they're going to they're going to they're going to destroy the home. So you need to evacuate the town immediately. But there was this one stubborn old man named Dave. I had to make it personal, guys. There was <laughs> he's going to smack me later. <laughs> Who heard the warning and he decided to stay, saying to himself, "I'm not leaving my home. If I'm in danger." The Lord's going to save me. The Lord's going to save me. So the neighbors came by his house and said to him, Dave, we're leaving and there's room in, in for you in our car. So, so please come with us. But that Dave, as stubborn as he can be, he said, nope, I'm staying. I have faith that God will save me. As, as Dave stood on his porch watching the water rise up the steps, this man, in this canoe, paddles by and called to him, hurry and climb into my canoe. The waters are rising quickly. But Dave was still too stubborn and said, no, no, thank you. God will save me. Soon the floodwaters rose so high that Dave had to climb up onto his rooftop. And this helicopter spotted him and dropped this rope ladder. But Dave said, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. God will save me. Well, shortly after that, the house broke up and the floodwater swept Dave down the river. In heaven, Dave made it to heaven. (laughs) Dave stood before God and he was a little perturbed and said, I waited and I waited for you. Why didn't you come and save me? And God said, Dave, I sent you a car, I sent you a canoe, and a helicopter. What more do you want? (laughs) Isn't that the truth? God's grace is just like that. It comes in many forms. It may come from behind the pulpit or cloaked with kindness from a stranger. It might discover, you might discover it in the, in the pages of the scriptures you're reading your Bibles or in the stillness of your prayers, or while you're on this walk looking over this beautiful vista. It could come at any time, at all angles, but it keeps coming, searching for souls to save. That's what it does. God won't give up on you. He'll give you every opportunity possible to accept His grace, to receive His gift. On the other hand, maybe you've already embraced God's grace and that's maybe the problem. You know, you, you keep coming back for more. You know, you ask for forgiveness more times than you can remember. You, you ask for strength to get through each day. You know, you've prayed for, for more than your fair share of miracles. You know, the, so I guess the question is this. Does there come a point when you've reached your grace limit? Is there such a thing as grace limit? You know, can, can you make so many withdrawals on God's grace that there are insufficient funds available? Is that possible? Well, let, let me answer that question with another question. If you plunged a sponge into the Susquehanna River, will that sponge absorb every drop of water? If you take a deep breath, In this room, would you suck out all the oxygen so no one else could breathe? No, probably not. 
When an ocean wave crashes against the beach, will there be another one coming? Probably will. Of course, there will be. No sooner will one wave crash against the sand than another one will appear, than another one will appear, than another one will appear. It keeps coming. That's what God's endless grace is like. If God had nothing more to, than, than, than to save us from certain doom, that would still be gracious enough, wouldn't it? If God had nothing more to do but to save you from certain doom, that would be enough. If God gave you eternal life and nothing more, who would complain? I made it to heaven. Praise the Lord. That would be enough for me. But God's grace doesn't stop there. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 16, and this is the ESV standard Bible, it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. If you woke up in a warm house, were healthy enough to get out of bed, if you own a vehicle that carried you here this morning, you've already received grace upon grace. Like waves crashing against the sandy beach, God's grace just keeps coming with no end in sight because His grace is an endless grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And the last quality of God's grace is that it is an equalizing grace. It's equal. One of the reasons we often stumble over this parable is that it offends our sense of fairness. Where's the fairness in all this? You know, we think that the workers who were in the vineyard longer deserve to be given more than the latecomers who deserve to be given less. They, they don't, they don't deserve that. You know, but Jesus points out to those complaining. He says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, there's, are you envious because I am generous? You know, do you begrudge me because of my generosity? It says there. None of them were disappointed with what they received until they, they, they start saying what everyone else received. You know, we, we tend to act the same way, don't we? You know, can't, can't you just hear the labors in the vineyard at the end of the day? Hey, man, I put six hours in that hot sun today. Oh yeah? Well, I put nine hours in. Well, you know what? That's nothing, boys. I've been breaking my back out there for 11 and a half hours. 12 hours if you count lunch. I want you to notice the chain of events that took place in the hearts of these workers. They started by comparing themselves to others. Then this led to coveting, which led to complaining, which ultimately led to criticizing. Do you struggle with coveting, complaining, criticizing? If so, then like Bob Hartman said, stop it! Just stop it! Stop comparing yourselves to others! Don't do it! Don't be tempted to do it! Don't compare yourself to others. Comparing ourselves to others is the quick and easy way to maybe feel good or bad about ourselves. I don't know, sometimes. To think that we, that, that we somehow are entitled to more of God's grace and goodness than someone else, you know, standing next to a, a deadbeat or junkies or prostitutes 
or even the world, we can boast, look, God, compared to them, compared to them, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Don't I deserve more? Don't I deserve more? But that's the problem. God doesn't compare us to them. They aren't the standard, guys. You know who the standard is? It's God. He is the standard. And compared to Him, none of us are any better or more deserving than anybody else. Absolutely. But suppose God simplified matters and reduced the Bible to just one command. Let's say it was just one command. His command is this, Thou shalt jump so high in the air that you touch the moon. No more need for loving your neighbor or that praying thing or following Jesus. Just touch the moon by virtue of the jump and you shall be saved. None of us could ever do that. There may be a few of you in here who can jump three or four feet. I know I can't. I'm lucky if I can get a foot off the ground here. Even fewer might be able to jump five or six feet. But compared to the 230,000 miles that it would take to touch the moon, who could boast? None of us could. Now God, fortunately, hasn't called us to touch the moon, has he? Praise the Lord! (laughs) Praise Jesus! But he might as well have. You know, Jesus established the standard in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says this. He says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, none of us can meet that standard, folks, because none of us are God. Maybe you can jump six inches higher than that heretic or a foot higher than that heathen over there. But compared to the distance between us and God, we all fall terribly short, don't we? But that's where grace comes in. The grace of God is the great equalizer. God in His grace lifts us up and puts us on the same level. You know, Jesus put it this way at the end of that parable. He said in in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, he says, So the last will be first and the first will be last. In God's economy of grace, the first and the last just kind of blur together. They just kind of intermix together there. You know, it's about keep, it's, it's, it's about not keeping score. It's not about whether Jesus gives you eight ounces or 15 ounces or even 20 ounces of grace. It's just about the fact that he gives it to you, period. That's what it's all about. And in closing this morning, when I told you at the very beginning of this message that Jesus never said the word grace in the Gospels, that wasn't the whole story. It's true that the Gospels don't record a single time that the word grace ever comes from Jesus' mouth. It's nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount. He never whispered it to Peter, James, or John. He didn't shout it out from the cross. But here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Two decades after Jesus died on the cross, 
the Apostle Paul prayed. He prayed to the Lord three times. He asked Jesus to help remove this particular problem or pain that he was having. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient right there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient. Jesus' words to Paul are his words to you and to me. My grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. J. Vernon McGee. Anybody ever hear of that guy? J. Vernon McGee? He, he, he told a story about the days of the Civil War in a city in the South. I want to share that story with you. At the center of town, there was a commotion as a crowd gathered. They were going to have a public auction to watch, you know, and they were going to gather to watch the proceedings. In the crowd, there was this uncouth, foul-mouthed, loud, boisterous man who was the meanest, cruelest, most hated man around town. But also in the crowd was another man who stands out for his dignity, his gentle mannerisms, and, 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 and soft-spoken tone. And it is one of the most kind and gentle and gracious men in the town. Both men, along with the crowd, wait for the auction to begin. The auctioneer steps to the podium and he begins rattling his words as the first item to be sold is brought to the auction block. And remember, this is back in the Civil War times. And on the block is a beautiful young black girl about the age of 20. Her dress is old and torn, but remarkably clean. And and she is obviously filled with anxiety and fear as the bidding begins on her. And from the outset, this loud, obnoxious man seemed to have his evil, lecherous eyes set on on this lovely, innocent young lady. She cringed in fear as, as he opened the bidding. And when the gentle man saw her fear, he too placed a bid. Soon, only these two men were involved in the bidding as the price of the girl rose higher and higher. And finally, the evil man bowed out of the bidding when he realized that the price of the girl was more than he was willing to pay. And when the auctioneer closed the bidding, the, the, the kind gentleman placed or paid the price for her purchase. He handed the bill of sale and he turned to leave. He was handed the bill of sale and he was turned, and he turned to leave. The young girl started to follow her new master. He then turned to her and he asked, where are you going? Why, I'm going with you, she responded. You, you, you bought me and I'm, and I belong to you. And the, the gentleman looking at her said, Oh no, no. You misunderstood, the man said. I didn't buy you to make you my slave. I bought you to set you free. That's what I did. So he took out the bill of sale. 
And he wrote across the, the bill cell, these big block letters, the word free. Then he signed his name and he gave it to the young lady. I don't understand, the girl said. You mean I'm free? Yes, you're free. I mean, I can go wherever I want to and, and do whatever I please? Exactly, you're free. She went on to say, sir, I don't know who you are, but no one has ever shown such love and kindness to me. If I am free to do as I please, nothing would please me more than to go with you and to serve you until the day I die. And that day she went home with him, not as his slave, but as a willing servant. You know, folks, each of us have been a slave to sin. But we have also been given the, the free, gracious gift at an incredible price paid by Jesus. Not to make us slaves, but to set us free. So how could we respond in any other way than to say, if you love me that much, then I'm going to serve you forever. This, I think, is the power of God's amazing grace, and it is available right here, right now, for you and me to heal, to free, to forgive, and to set us free. And I truly believe that's why he brought us here today. This is not an accident that we're all here together. He brought us here today to hear the message, and once and for all, that we would be con convinced that, that we have received that free grace. And if you haven't received that free grace today, then it's open for you to receive it. When we get to heaven, there won't be any contest to see who, who is most deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. But it's a free gift. There's only going to be one contest in heaven. Only one contest. When we look back and we see what we were before we met Jesus Christ, when we see how penniless and poor we really were, when we remember the day that Jesus found us on the street and he reached out his, his hand to us, his, his extravagant, endless, equalizing, loving grace, the only contest that you're going to see, the only contest that we're going to be involved in is who can sing the loudest, amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. My money is on either Ryan or Julie as to who's going to be the loudest. That's who my money's on. But I'm going to try to beat you. So I want you to get those vocal cords prepared and ready for one glorious, gracious contest. We're going to have a blast, folks. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amen.